Well, we are in our final week uh, going through the book of James. Uh, James has had a lot to say to us about putting our faith into action. And uh, I don't know about you, but I am glad that James only has five chapters and we cannot step on toes much longer, right? So he has had a lot to say, and hopefully you have a couple toes left um, because we're going to eliminate those today. Um, James is very different than a lot of other books of the Bible. Many books of the Bible give us great hope and great encouragement. Um, James just likes to stomp on us. Uh, really challenges us, really stretches us. That if, if we really look at what James is saying for us, uh, that is going to have a tremendous impact on our day-to-day lives. If we will put into practice what God is calling us to through James, uh, it's going to look very different than the, the normal lives that we live. Um, as we go through this series, as, re- as really we go through any study, uh, we say, God, what are you saying to me? And what are we going to do about it? And so we continue on at the end of James here, asking those questions, God, what are you saying to me through this text here? And then, of course, what are we going to do about it as we try to implement what it is he has called us into? He wraps up his letter with a variety of commands, a variety of instructions and warnings. Um, And so we could uh, continue and drag the series out and look at each one, but we're just going to kind of consolidate them all into one, one cohesive thought this morning as we wrap up this study of James. Uh, David Platt has a commentary on James, and he organizes this last section around seven characteristics of a, uh, of a persevering faith. And so we're going to talk about a faith that lasts, a faith that perseveres, and seven characteristics of that kind of faith. What kind of faith lasts? And so we'll use this framework this morning as we talk through it. The first one, the first characteristic of a faith that lasts is a humility before a sovereign God. We have to be humble before a God that's sovereign. We're going to look at James chapter 4, starting in verse 13, and we're going to go through a lot of text. So once, along, once again, if you want to follow along in your Bible, that would probably be easiest, uh, but we'll have all the text on the screen as well. Now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business, and make money. Why, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? We are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. All such boasting is evil. And so James paints a picture here for, of a person who is bragging about their own strength, bragging about their own plans, and ignoring their dependence on God. This person is arrogantly making big plans and gaining wealth without acknowledging God and who God is and what God is calling them to. And so how easy it is for us to slip in the same trap where we start making plans for tomorrow. We, we make business plans. We make goals for our education, for our careers, for our investment accounts. And we become so focused on our plans that we forget the plans of God. We become consumed with structuring things around what we desire, and we forget to ask, God, what do you want to do? 
And so we're no longer listening for what he wants for us because we think we know what's best for ourselves. And so we engage in business plans, we, we engage in investment plans, we, we engage in activities not seeking God's will for what we are to do. But James reminds us that we are just a mist in comparison to God. That there is a limit to who we are compared to God. He is all-powerful. He is supreme. He is sovereign over all things, and the plans that we make are just a mist. That we have our business plans. We have our bank accounts. He is sovereign over all of those. He's sovereign over our plans. He's sovereign over our lives. He's sovereign even over our death. He reigns over our accomplishments and our activities. And so there becomes a great danger when we become consumed by the material realm instead of focusing on the spiritual realm. The material becomes our focus and we forget and ignore the spiritual realm that exists that should be influencing our decision making. And so Jesus calls his followers into a radically different way of living. He calls us into a place where, where the kingdom of God is first. We seek first his kingdom, his plans, and all of our plans become secondary to his plans. So a faith that lasts humbly submits to the sovereign plan of God. A second characteristic of a faith that lasts is obedience to the will of God. Starting in verse 17, If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. Just that one verse there takes a few more toes, doesn't it? If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. So there are two different types of sin. There is the sin of commission. A sin of commission is doing something that God specifically said not to do. It's breaking a rule. That is a sin of commission. So he says, do not murder. If we murder, then we commit the sin of commission. If, if the command is do not commit adultery, and we do, then we commit a sin of commission. Those are things where we break the rule that's given to us. But there's another kind of sin, there's sin of omission. This is a sin where we disregard what God has said to do. We hear a command from God. We know what he wants for us. We know his instructions for us, uh, but then we choose not to do it. And James is full of those kinds of instructions, right? How to treat the poor, how to treat the disenfranchised. He gives us very specific instructions for that. And when we choose not to follow those, those become sins of omission. And so he says something like, you know the good that you should do. You know the good. You know the instructions and you don't do it. And not doing it is a sin. And so this becomes incredibly challenging for us. How many good things do we have the opportunity to do but don't? Way too often those opportunities come and go. We don't take action on the things that God is calling us into. Laura and I were in 
Colorado Springs this last week and uh, spending some time away, and uh, we went to Starbucks a few too many times, and um, being able to go somewhere without a baby is just a treat, right? So Starbucks is the place. So, so we go to Starbucks several times, and, and there is a man sitting on the curb outside of the Starbucks every time that we go to Starbucks, and we see him, and we're, we're on our way out of town, and we see him on the curb once again. He's got his sign asking for help. We go to lunch and order way too much lunch and have leftovers, and so Laura wants to take the leftovers to this man, and there is a part of me that, that kind of bristles at this. This is my confession. That is, I'm uncomfortable with that. So, so we, we, we take the food to him, and we're back in front of the Starbucks, and we've got to go in again, right? So <laughs> we just can't help ourselves. And so, we, so Laura wants to offer to get this man, because it's raining, she wants to give him a hot drink, and once again, I'm like, this is my gift card that somebody gave me, I've got, this, these are my, this is my credit on this card, but, but I am faithful in following her lead on this, and so we go in and get hot chocolate for him, and take it out, and pray over him, and, and it becomes this really rich opportunity for us to serve someone. Um, but my natural instinct is to be selfish. I want to hold on to these things that are mine. I don't want to get out of my comfort zone. I don't want to do what God is calling me to because it's not comfortable. And so these become the sins of omission. For he calls us into something. Are we going to be faithful to it or not? God laid a very specific thing on Laura's heart that day for that man. Will we be obedient to it, or will we do what's comfortable for us? God calls us each into unique things in our own environments. It may not be the person on the side of the street. It may be a neighbor. It may be a widow. It may be a family member. It may be a co-worker, but God has placed something on your heart to do for that person. Will we be obedient to that? Because not being obedient to what God calls us to is sin. And when we are faithful in those little things, when we say yes to those things that he calls us to, each time we say yes, our faith gets stronger and stronger. Because we're walking in the will of God. And so a faith that lasts is one that is obedient to God's will in our lives. We're faithful to that. We do what he calls us to. A third ca characteristic is confidence in the justice of God. Confidence in the justice of God. Starting in chapter 5, verse 1. This is where it gets tough. That other stuff was easy. Now listen, you rich people. Weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Almighty God. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourself in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who was not opposing you. 
Be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains. So, Jesus, so James has had this emphasis on care for the poor throughout his book, right? And we've, we've been looking at how he calls us into caring for others. And now he gets to some of the harshest language against the rich that we've seen really in all of Scripture. He, he gives the rich such a tongue lashing here where he really calls them out for their sins. He uses phrases like misery is coming and wealth has rotted and moths have eaten and gold is corroded and it will eat your flesh like fire. So not a comfortable position to be in here as the wealthy. And so these ver verses mention the last days and the Lord's coming. And so it reminds us that, that Jesus is coming back. He is going to return. And in his return, he is going to judge the sinful. He's going to judge the wealthy and how they use their wealth. And so it's likely that these first five verses here are, are referring more toward unbelievers and how they use their wealth to, uh, to oppress the believers. And so the rich here are being judged by, by their hoarding of wealth, by cheating workers of their wages, by living in self-indulgence, by condemning the innocents, but the innocent. And so this is all tough to swallow because even though he's talking about unbelievers and, and we are believers, sometimes these characteristics can describe us a little bit too much. How often can it be said of us that we are hoarding wealth? instead of giving wealth away. Hopefully we're not cheating workers of their wages, but are we living in self-indulgence? Maybe that describes us too often. And so we look at these verses and it, it really calls us into an evaluation of how we view money and how we view wealth. What do we use for ourselves and what do we use for others? And so we need to spend some time in our hearts evaluating how we approach money because James has some very harsh things to say against the wealthy. We don't want to be on that side of judgment, do we? And so how do we use our resources? But then as we read through this, we get to verse 7, and it reminds us that Jesus will also deliver the faithful. There's hope for us. Now put yourself in the, the shoes of the ones who first read this letter. These were the persecuted Christians who had been scattered. Uh, they're reading this letter for the first time. They're the ones who are being, being cheated and condemned and taken advantage of by the wealthy. Put yourself in that position. And James says, in that context, if you're one of those people, what do you do? Be patient. Jesus will deliver he will bring justice. We don't get our own vengeance. We don't fight our own fight. Jesus will deliver us. We have to be patient for that. And so if we are to have a faith that lasts, a faith that survives all the, 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 the trials and the, the, the temptations that we go through, if we're to have a faith that lasts, we have to have a confidence in the justice of God. He will be the one who, he will be the one who delivers us when the right time comes. The fourth characteristic of a faith, of la a faith that lasts is patience in suffering. It gets more and more challenging here. Patience in suffering. 
starting in verse 7 again. Be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and the spring rains. You too, be patient and stand firm, because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we count as blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. And so James is encouraging us here to, encouraging the persecuted Christians to to be patient, even in the midst of that suffering. Don't fight that fight, don't resist it, don't seek vengeance, but be patient in it. And he gives us three different examples of, of ones who are patient. He gives us this example of farmers who have to wait for the harvest. They can be in control of the seed that they plant, but they can't be in control of the growth that happens. They just have to wait and let God do what God is going to do in the growth. They work faithfully in what they can control, but in the things that they can't control, they leave it to God and wait patiently. He gives us the example of prophets who are are called to speak the truth regardless of the consequences, And, and the prophets faced great trials because of the word that they had to share. And they can't control how the message is received by people, but they can control being faithful to delivering the message that God has given them. And then he gives us the example of Job, who we know faced such suffering. His friends recommended that he totally give up on God, walk away from God, and just die. But ultimately, he had the patience to wait through it. And he kept his faith in God. And so when we face suffering, when we face struggles, when things are not going the way we had hoped they would go, we wait patiently, knowing that God is in control, that he will be the one to make things right. And so being patient through suffering builds and strengthens our faith the more patient we are with it, the stronger our faith gets. And and we acknowledge that we're not in control, but God is the one in control. He is the one who is at work. And so we patiently wait for his work to be done. And so a faith that lasts is a faith that is patient, even in those times of suffering. A fifth characteristic is trustworthy speech. He says in verse 12, Above all, my brothers and sisters, do not swear, not by heaven or by earth or by anything else. All you need to say is a simple yes or no, otherwise you will be condemned. And so James in previous chapters has had a lot to say about the tongue and a lot to say about our language. And this seems to be a little bit out of place here. He kind of throws in this extra little thing here about speech and letting your yes be yes and your no be no. And so basically, we have to be trustworthy in the things that we say. People have to know that what we say is true. And so the words from our mouth should be consistent and reliable. A faith that lasts is a faith that has trustworthy speech. People can depend on what we have to say. A sixth characteristic is prayerful in sorrow. Verse 13. 
Is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church and pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they have sins, they will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Elijah was a human being, even as we are. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. So James goes back to the struggles of verses 7 through 11, and he says that being patient in suffering is not a passive thing. That we, we don't simply sit and wait, that we, we wait in a very active way. And the way that we wait actively is through prayer. If you find yourself in a sorrowful situation, if you find yourself in a suffering situation, that you actively wait through prayer. Not only do we pray in hard times, but we also pray in good times and so we've done a whole series recently on prayer, so we won't spend a lot of time talking about prayer, but I think there's two unique things that really stand out in this passage right here. First, there's this emphasis on the elders anointing the sick with the oil they, and as they pray for them. And so this is something that is unique, it's something that is different, something that we don't necessarily do, and so it can be interpreted in a lot of different ways. This is the only place in the New Testament letters where, where the concept of anointing with oil uh, for, for healing in, in prayer shows up. And so we can interpret it a variety of ways. I think it's, it's mostly symbolic in what it's talking about here. The power of prayer is in the God that we pray to. The power is not in how we pray. The, the, the power is not into the method of prayer. The power is not even in who does the praying. The power is in the God we're praying to. And so in the Old Testament, anointing with oil was something that was used to set people apart. And so if we anoint the sick, we're setting people apart for special attention and care from God. And so that's some of what is going on in this passage here. But there's also a second thing. There's this emphasis on prayer as a church community. He emphasizes that we should pray for each other. And we've talked a lot about the importance of praying with one another and for one another. And so as we talked about in our prayer series, praying for another person, which we call intercessory prayer, is one of the greatest acts of love that you can give to another person. And so we are a praying church that prays for one another and with one another. That's why our prayer time at the end of, end of the message every Sunday is so valuable and so important because we want to be praying with one another and for one another. And so we're prayerful not only in our sorrow, but we're also prayerful in the sorrow of others that we don't come together as individuals. We come together as a family, as a community that lifts one another's needs up in prayer. And so I want us to, to pause here for just a moment. And we're going to pray uh, for each other and with one another uh, in areas of concern specific to health, health needs. 
And so I, I want us just to, once again, get out of our comfort zone. And if you have, if you have a physical need uh, that you need prayed for, you need physical healing, um, I want you to be bold enough to stand right now. Can you stand if you need physical healing for something so that we can pray for you? Is there anyone? There's a few. Okay. Very good. Any others? Okay. If there is someone um, standing around you, I would like for you to uh, gather around them and place hands on them. Make sure everybody's got someone. God, we, um, we lift these people up to you, the ones that are, are standing uh, confidently knowing that you can heal, that you can bring about um, just a, a miracle in their body right now. God, we pray that you will work in their bodies. The things that are broken, the things that are not functioning correctly, the things that are not working correctly, God, we pray that you will move in mighty and powerful ways right now. That as we, as we lay hands on them right now, we pray that you will, will work through their bodies and bring about a miraculous change. God, make things right in them. Ease their pain, ease their discomfort, ease their hurting. God, make them whole and work in their bodies. God, for the ones who have not stood up or, or family members that are close to us, relatives that are close to us, God, we pray the same prayer for them that they will be healed. So God, we lift this up in the name of Jesus, knowing that you have the power to work, and we pray in his authority now for healing in these people. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Go ahead and be seated. And so we pray for one another, we encourage one another, and having a faith that lasts means that we're prayerful during these sorrowful situations, and in sickness and in health, and in trials, and in, in, in all that is going on in our lives, we, we are prayerful people. And, and the more that we pray through those sorrows, the more that we take that through to God, the stronger our faith becomes. And so a faith that lasts is a faith that is prayerful during sorrow. A final characteristic is loving towards sinners. And these are the last verses of James. My brothers and sisters, if one of you should wonder from the truth, then someone should bring that, per then someone should bring that person back. Remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of their ways will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. And so James has given us a letter full of commands and warnings and instructions, and as he wraps up here, he gives us this final word to the church. He says, in light of all that, of all that I've said, in light of all that I've said about the poor, in light of everything that I've, I've said about faith and, and speech and, and what it means to have a faith that acts, in light of all of that, make sure to watch out for one another. We watch out for one another. And this is where the community of faith becomes so important. Brothers and sisters will wander away, and we have a responsibility to restore them back into a relationship with God. 
And what does that look like? There's, there's so much to that of how to lovingly approach somebody and bring them back. Being a disciple of Jesus is not simply uh, being about an individual who obeys. My following of Jesus is not an individual thing. My following of Jesus is a community thing. Churches are communities of faith that come together, and as disciples, we work together to help one another and encourage one another and build one another up. That's why it's so important for us to gather every week, because we we gather together to share testimony, to encourage one another, to build one another up. It's not something where you come just to simply listen to me give a sermon. It's something where we come together to restore one another into full relationship with God. And so we gather together to do that. And if you miss a week, you miss out on that. You come to give to one another. We have a responsibility in helping others, and that means you have to know others well enough to actually be able to have that conversation. You have to be in a relationship with each other to be able to have that conversation. You can't call somebody out from a distance not having invested in knowing that person. And so we have a responsibility to know one another, to love one another, and care for one another. And so having a faith that lasts means that we have a loving attitude towards those who fall, those who are sinful, and we work toward restoring them into a relationship with Jesus. And so that gets us to the end of this great letter of James, where we talk about having a faith that works, a faith that that requires action, a faith that cannot be passive, a faith that is not just a simple declaration of who Jesus is, but in who Jesus is, our lives are transformed into a different life. And the only reason that we're able to do that is because of what Jesus does on the cross. It's made possible because our faith is in Jesus. Not because we work really hard, not because we do all the right things, not because we check all the boxes. We believe in Jesus. And it is through his saving work that we are given a new life that we are adopted into the kingdom of God, that we become new creations, heirs to the throne. We come into that, and because of that incredible gift of grace, because of all that he has done for us, we can't help but give back. We can't help but take action in the kingdom of God. And so we receive forgiveness for our sins And because of that incredible gift, we follow Jesus. We follow him in obedience to what he's called us to. And so if we are to have a faith that will survive, if we we are to have a faith that lasts, we have to be humble before the sovereign God, knowing that he is in control of all things and I am not. We have to be obedient to his will in our lives and and we have to do what he says to do. We have to be confident that he will be the one who brings justice, that, that we will be judged in the end. 
We have to be patient when we're suffering. We have to be trustworthy in the things that we say. We have to be prayerful in the sorrow that we find ourselves in. And we have to be loving toward the sinners in our midst. Let's be standing together. This has been um, just, just an incredible journey through the letter of James, where it just, it really, um, it, it really beats us up a little bit, right? But we have great hope, knowing that, that our, our ability to do the things that James says to do, that does not impact our relationship with God, because our relationship with God is defined by the cross. And so it's important for us not to get those confused, that we're not taking action to earn the love of the Father. We have the love of the Father because of Jesus. And it is because he loves us that we take action. And so we have asked the question, God, what are you saying to me? And what are you going to do about it? And so we're going to spend some time in prayer now where we can take all prayer needs. Uh, We're going to have shepherds down front and you can Pray with one another and for one another. Go to one another. You know what's going on in the lives of different people. Go say, how can I pray for you? And use this time to pray. And use this time to encourage one another. Use this time to to tell somebody what point of action you need to take. What is God calling you to? And ask somebody to hold you accountable to taking that action this week. It can be just a little thing. If you have not confessed that Jesus is the Lord of your life, that you want to be a part of his kingdom and be his follower, then we need to have that conversation this morning, and we can talk about that down front. Let's pray together. The praise team is going to give us a little bit of a pause so we can have some quiet time to pray with one another, and then uh, they will jump in a couple minutes in with a song. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for all that you give us, all that you do for us, God, we want to be faithful and obedient to what you've called us into. And so, God, we, we pray for courage, we pray for strength to, to take action in the things that you've called us to. Help us to be obedient in that. We surrender all of these requests to you now. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.